Good morning, Crossroads Church. Uh, say it like you mean it. Good morning, Crossroads Church. Okay, I'm going to ask you guys to all help me out right here. Why don't you all stand, take a stretch. You'll thank me later, I promise. Then say hi to a few people. You'll thank me later. Trust me. Okay, Wendy, I'm going to disappear for just a minute. What's that? Maybe. Well, good morning. We are currently in a series called The Winner Circle, The Unlikely Path to the Top. And before we begin, I do want to say a couple things. We have a couple programming notes I do want to address. Next week, part three of the series, Pastor Dennis Anderson is going to be presenting the message. And then the week after that, our lead pastor, Ryan Howell, will be back to wrap up this series. But also on that weekend, it's also made note of this, has been referred to as Ryan Howell Appreciation Sunday. Because after what you go through today, trust me, your appreciation will go to a whole nother level. But I know we just prayed, but uh, why don't we open up in prayer? It's going to be for all of our benefits. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather, to worship, to connect, to learn, to grow. And a couple prayers I want to pray. One, I pray for myself daily that I want to pray for all of us here today. In Psalm 119, 18, it says, open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your law. And then something I pray for our church, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us today. So with that, we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So today's topic, we're going to be looking at paving your path with the power of modeling. Now, for every one of these series, there's a big idea that I want to introduce to all of us today. And it says, Jesus offers us an unlikely path to greatness. This path is not found in getting the best education, making the most money, getting enough followers on social media. This path is found in the, not in the halls of political power or in the cover of magazines. No, the unlikely path to the top, to the real winner circle, is found through the humble act of serving. And last week, Pastor Ryan Howe introduced our anchor verse that kind of serves as a theme throughout the series, and it's up here on the side screens, and it's Luke twenty-two twenty-six. But among you, you shall not be so. Rather, let the greatest of among you be as the youngest, and as the leader, as the servant. Now, as we dive into part two of this series, I thought I'd begin by sharing my example of my first serving experience. So, though this happened over 30 years ago, it's about as fresh in my mind like it happened yesterday. So, I came to know Christ, what it means to be a Christ follower, during my third sophomore year in college. Now, <laughs> you guys got to keep in mind, you guys have to keep in mind, like Ryan, I went to a very prestigious um, learning institution. In fact, it's often referred to as the Harvard of the Pacific, and otherwise known as the University of Hawaii. Why are you guys laughing? Okay. Anyway, I was meandering in life, and I knew there had to be more. And through a series of providential circumstances and relationships, I found myself immersed in a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, now referred to as Crew. And they had a focus on young people, specifically college students. Now, what I found there was a peer group that had a vibrancy and attractiveness to their faith and their relationship with God. And I was attending everything they had to offer, big group gatherings, small groups, prayer meetings, even though I never said a word, I just wanted more. However, a problem occurred when during spring break, all the activities would cease for two weeks, 
Now, you've got to understand, I've only been in this faith thing for about a month, and I didn't know what to do. Now, the church I was attending at the time had a group of young adults that was heavily involved with another Christian organization called Youth for Christ, YFC. And they all served as leaders of high school small groups. So one of my best friends who recently had his own conversion experience was better connected with this group. And when he made them aware of my situation, they suggested I join them for the YFC Ultimate Spring Bash Party. There, all the various high school groups from YSC would be there, gathering for food, fun, and a Bible study. And you know what? This sounded exactly what I needed. This sounded like the perfect gathering. However, when I showed up, in fact, there's going to be a picture of what this gathering was. That's Kapiolani Beach Park right there. However, when I showed up, I found myself in the midst of dozens of schools, hundreds and hundreds of students on the outside looking in. You see, all these adults had pre-assigned serving roles and responsibilities, and all were connected to a specific small group they were going to serve in. So I was looking for any way to serve, but sadly to no avail as they had most things covered. Now, I got my big break. Here's my big break. They were running behind and getting lunch prepared, and they had no one to make the punch. So one of the staff members asked if I could make the punch. He told me what to do, get all the big orange coolers, I mean the really big ones, remember hundreds of kids, which had already had been filled with ice. And all I had to do, simple thing, all I had to do was pour the syrup on the top. So I was so excited because up to this point in my faith journey, I had been attending a lot of things, but this would be the first ministry or serving role I'd be stepping into. So I grabbed the cart, wheeled over the igloos to the picnic area. We're surrounding me. We were blankets, mats, towels, all laid out with all the, their Bibles and bags on top of them. But everyone had dispersed to get in line to get hamburgers and hot dogs. Now, I put the igloos on the picnic table and wanting to make sure the paste punch tasted just right, I sampled it, but here's the problem. The syrup to the water ratio was a little off. So I took off the lid and began to then proceed to do one cup at a time like this, and I'd take some and pour it to the top, take some to pour it on the top. Now, You can imagine, as I began to do this, do this, the syrup was very heavy in the top, and it began to kind of get a little bit better, but I recognized a really long line had formed for the drinks. And at the rate I was going at, doing this one cup at a time, pouring it on the top, remember, I got multiple coolers, too. This would take all day. Now, I like to think I'm a smart person. Probably you guys differ in that opinion. <laughs> so I proceeded to grab the cooler handles and pull it to the end of the table, and began to shake the cooler to get the punch to better consistency. And what this did was it accelerated the process and everyone was happy as they got their punch to drink with their meals. Now it is my hope that for all of you, you would have a, as successful a first serving opportunity as I did. But the truth is for me too, because that's not what happened. Now I'm not sure about the science behind all of this and how the supernatural all works, but I'm not joking, time literally froze still. And the cooler froze in midair as I pulled it over and it began to fall. And it froze in midair just to give it enough time for all of those hundreds of kids surrounding the park to take a look at me. <laughs> then the cooler suspended in midair, and with punch starting to come out in midair, I let out with a loud voice, ah, oh, what bad luck. But that's not what I said. <laughs> it was another word 
with CKN again. <laughs> and again, I showed you the picture of that park because I don't understand how the, all the acoustics work because we were at a beach, but those words just echoed and reverberated for what seemed like forever. Now, if you think I'm making this stuff up, my best friend growing up that I mentioned earlier was about 30 feet away witnessing this, and he would give the same account. In fact, I just talked to him on Thursday night to validate this. He said, Rod, that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> then it happened. The cooler with the lid off dropped to the ground with the punch going everywhere. Blanks and jackets getting soaked and Bibles getting soaked as well. And I referred to this incident in my life as the splitting of the purple sea. <laughs> and there I was standing there with everybody looking at me. So as you can see, my first example of serving left much to be desired. Now, if there's time at the end of our service, I'm concluded with sharing something I can almost guarantee you I'm the only person who's done in their lifetime and might actually have some redemptive value. So I hope I have some time to do that. But let's dive in today. Now, if you had one message to give or you're given a final opportunity to give a final admonition, what would it be? Would it be a lifelong truism that you had lived by? Maybe words of wisdom passed down from one generation to the next, and now it's your time to pass it to the next generation? Or maybe could it be a story that illustrates what you value and what is most important in your life? Now, the passage we're going to look in today, and in fact, I encourage all of us, pull up in your outline notes, is found in the Gospel of John chapter 13. And what this particular chapter illustrates, and what we could argue is, this is Jesus' first, let me actually, it's his final teaching. Now, I'd like to give a disclaimer right there. If you are new to the Bible, first of all, we are glad you're here. And I want to make note of this, that the Bible is simply a collection of books. It's broken up into two parts or two sections, most notably or commonly referred to as the Old Testament is the first section that has 39 books. And then we have the New Testament that has 27 books. And the Gospel of John is simply one of four counts capturing the life of Jesus here on earth. And it is this fourth book of the New Testament that we're looking at. However, instead of just teaching this final lesson to his disciples, he decides to model it for them and give us an example to follow. Now, getting up to this point, there is a lot going on in Jesus and the disciples' life. And I want to just unpack this in the next hour or so. So let me first set the backdrop of how we're going to get to this place. Ryan said I can talk as long as I want. He said you only get one time in your lifetime, so talk as much as I'm just kidding. Okay. But some of this Ryan covered last week, so I'll go into this into not, I won't go into such great deal. First of all, I want to set the tone here. The events that take place in John 13 take place on a Thursday evening. Now, leading up to this week, Jesus had quite the week. So he comes into town on Sunday. He enters into Jerusalem, which often is referred to in religious and Christian circles as Palm Sunday. In fact, you might even say that on your calendars. Then on Monday, he has some interactions where he attends the temple and he cleanses the temple. On Tuesday, he confronts some religious leaders. On Wednesday, he completes preparations for Passover, which is the biggest festival that the Jewish people acknowledge and celebrate. And I'm sharing this because there's a lot of things going on. And on this evening, as he's about to gather with his disciples one final time, he also has to do so knowing that one of his 12 disciples, one of the 12 people that he has spent and invested tons of his life into over the last three years, is going to betray him. 
Now, let's pick up right here. Look on your outline. It's going to be on the side screens where he lives out an example of what it means to serve. So I'm going to read, start reading right now, John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And this is where we pick this up right now. So on your outline notes, it says this. On our path to the top, it is paved by having, fill this in please, the right perspective on serving. Having the right perspective on serving. Now we're going to camp here for a little while on this particular point. And it picks up in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Now, before we get to Peter's response, Jesus' response, it might be good to ask, why does Peter respond the way he does? You will never wash my feet. I'd like to offer some possible perspectives on why he responded the way he did. The first one might have been, it was just in Peter's nature. When you read some of the other gospel accounts, like I mentioned, those four first books in the New Testament, you would see a lot of Peter's interactions with Jesus were often challenging, interrupting, questioning, disrupting. And here's just one example. In Mark 8, 31, 32, in Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection, this is how Peter responded. He said, and all of this quite openly, and Peter took him inside and began to rebuke him. So maybe Peter's response might have simply been instinctive. He got used to and very comfortable with Jesus. He's known to interrupt. Maybe that's simply what it was, a simple blink response. Another possible, possible perspective is possibly he was ashamed for his leader. Maybe in his mind he's thinking, I do not want the kind of leader I follow or associate doing such perceived degrading tasks of washing someone's feet. You know, back then, the washing of someone's feet was most often designated to a slave or a servant. In his mind, maybe he's thinking, the kind of leader I follow doesn't do such menial tasks. Or maybe another perspective might have been something like this. Oftentimes, we reject someone's act of service because secretly, we don't want to have to put in the situation ourselves where we have to return the favor or do it for someone else. Simply, maybe Peter wasn't in a position to receive because he was not ready to be in a position to give. We don't really know. What Peter did need was the right perspective towards serving. Peter was seeing things from a perspective of how this act of Jesus would affect him, not in terms of what he would receive, but in terms of what he would be required of him as a result. Now, here's Jesus' response, and notice the change in Peter's answer. And Jesus answered, picking up in verse 8, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, One who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but it is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. 
for he knew who would betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Now, there is a pragmatic and a spiritual reality being communicated in these verses. Pragmatically, like I mentioned, in Palestine, it was customary to bathe before going to a guest home. That was something you did. If you was invited to a guest home, you want to honor your guests, you would bathe yourself. However, again, walking the dirty streets of Jerusalem and throughout the region there in Palestine, you would have to wash your feet because your feet would get dirty. But that would be the only part you would need to wash. Now, spiritually, there is so much more than the act of foot washing. And this could be seen as a foreshadowing of the ultimate act of service that would happen when Jesus would die on the cross for our sins the very next day. So the notion being, if you don't accept this act of service from me, how will you, grade the act, how will you accept the greater act of service that will take place tomorrow? Jesus was saying, you have to let me wash your feet because this is a foreshadowing of what I will do later, the ultimate sacrifice. Now, after he had washed their feet, picking up in verse 12, he had put on his robe and he returned to the table and he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? Jesus wants to know if the disciples have the right perspective. Now, this is a pointed question. So let me repeat it in verse 12. Jesus asked the disciples, not just Peter, he asked the disciples, do you know what I have done for you? Now, Socrates said, recognition of the obvious is genius. So we could simply answer like this. You acted like Jesus. You washed their feet. But Jesus wants them to know and understand the significance and the implications of what he had just done. Now, I want to take a pause right now from this story. The call that Peter and the rest of the disciples entered in when Jesus said, come and follow me, was when they left everything they had. So I want to make this clear, that the disciples did not have a nine-to-five job to follow Jesus. In fact, they left their nine-to-five job. They left their families. And the reason why I say this is because to be a disciple of Jesus Christ was a 24-7 proposition. They literally were with him all the time. So though they're not mentioned in this next passage of Scripture I want us to look at, it would be a safe assumption that the disciples were Jesus on this occasion when Jesus visits the home of a religious leader. So let me switch gears here. So when you take a look on the side screens here, Luke 7, 36 to 39 and verse 44, let's read this. I'm going to read this for us. It says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, I want to encourage you, read that whole passage. It's Luke 7, 36 to 50, but I need to jump ahead for sake of time. And in verse 44, this is a very pointed thing here. Let's take a look at this. It says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, did you see this woman? I entered your house, and listen to this, you gave me no water for my feet, but she had bathed my feet with her tears and dried them up with her hair. 
The point I'd like to reference when I reference this particular passage of Scripture, juxtaposing against the passage in John 13 is, this was not the first time the disciples were ever exposed to feet washing. They saw it before. This time in relationship to Jesus as being, being washed. But this was not something new to them. And yet somehow they missed a perspective on what Jesus was doing. Now, in the Gospel of Luke 22, where our anchor verse comes from, might shed some further light on the situation. Because the reason why I'm packing this time here is because to get the right perspective on serving is so important. So let's take a look at Luke 22 to 23 to 27. Then they began to ask one another, which one of them could it be? Who would do this? A dispute arose among them to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so would you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one at the table, but I among you is the one who is serves. Now, this passage right here is telling the same story as John 13. The only difference is Luke leaves out the actual foot washing. And it may be very well in a competitive state of mind of who is the greatest and then trying to figure out who is the one that will betray Jesus. No one, none of the other 11 disciples were willing to do the task of washing Jesus' feet. Let me ask you guys something. How many of you like to do things that you have to do? Let me give us some examples. We have to go to the dentist. We have to renew our driver's license. Now, if you live in California, you know what, how big a have to that is. We have to pay our taxes. We have to, you fill in the blanks, or we have to, you fill in the blanks. Jesus is trying to shift our perspective. By washing their feet, Jesus is trying to set the example where, and you can fill this in on your outline, it is a movement to where serving is not as seen as something that we have to do, but rather something we get to do. That's the perspective Jesus is trying to share with us here. Serving is not something that we get, have to do, but rather serving is something that we get to do. So when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, he was not lowering his standards. Jesus was elevating serving to a place of dignity and honor, to shift their perspectives, to see serving as something we get to do and not have to do. So Jesus did this for them to show them the extent that this perspective should be applied. He used the example of something a slave would do. So maybe instead of arguing of who's the greatest, and maybe instead of trying to figure out in their mind who's the guilty one, maybe the disciples should have been fighting over who gets the honor to wash each other's feet. That was the key thing of that passage. Jesus was trying to change their perspective. Now, as we continue to this path to the top, is seen the example that Jesus sets, with us, sets which is embodied in who he is, which leads us to the next point, looking to the person who embodies serving. Fill that in, please. Looking to the person who embodies serving. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you the kind of person that learns how to set things up, just make pretend you get your new iPhone, by reading the manual? Or, or is it more helpful for someone to show you? In this next part of the chapter, Jesus is explaining what it means to lead by example. Let's continue on in verse 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For this is what I am. 
So I, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. This example that Jesus set for us is truly divine. Jesus did not just serve the disciples in this instant just because he was trying to give them a good example of what it looks like to serve. That was just part of the reason. He was doing this because Jesus could not help but do so. Because it was in the very nature of Jesus to serve. Jesus could not help but serve because to be Jesus was to serve. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 11, Ryan mentioned this last week. It begins by saying this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but for the interests of others. Let the, let's, let, me, in fact, let me just pause right there. At the end of verse 4, those two verses that we just read, everything that we see being lived out by the disciples in John 13 passage and Luke 11 is the exact opposite of what Paul is challenging us to do in this passage. Now, let's continue. Verse 5. It says, Let this same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality God as something to be exploited, but emptying himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This whole idea of Jesus, we have to look to Jesus, the person who embodied serving, is found in this movement. It is a movement to where serving is not just something you do, but an expression of who you are. That's on your outline there. Where serving is something that, not that you just do, but an expression of who you are. Jesus is not just challenging the disciples to do what he did. Jesus is challenging the disciples to live as how he lived. That's a key point in this particular passage right here. Now, I want to just share an example of something. Years ago, I used to oversee a creative arts team. And I was dealing with some very gifted, talented musicians and singers just like we have here at Crossroads. And when I would work with this team, I would challenge them and said, hey, do you know how you are viewed on a Sunday morning when you get up and sing a song or play an instrument? People see you in a completely different light. They look at you as whether you admit this or not or whether this is the way you think of you, they look at you as some stars because you're the people on stage singing and doing all the, what you saw, the upfront work. So one of the things I challenge them to do is an expression of living out, out of their personhood what it means to serve, as I said to them, or I asked them this question. I said, how do you think you increase your ability to lead this church? And these particular people would lead in worship. I said, do you think you increase your ability to lead this church by singing better, by practicing harder on an instrument, I said, you lead and gain your influence in this church when you take on the role of a servant. So here's what I did. I challenged all of our vocalists. I said, you don't have to do this often, but do this every once in a while. I said, every once in a while, when you are not singing, I'd like you to serve in a different area of our church. 
And let me tell you what would happen. I had this one great example. Her name is Julie Kelly. So Julie Kelly, when she was not singing, she would often serve at our coffee cart. So she would be out there making the espresso. And do you know what happened when people would come up to buy the espresso drinks and they see Julie there? They do a double take. They go, oh my gosh, what are you doing here? And let me tell you something. The next time Julie would sing a song in the church, trust me when I say her leadership influence went to a whole new level. It went to a whole new level, not because she sang the song better, but because they saw her in a different light as someone who didn't just serve, but somebody who embodied serving. Now, as we continue on this path to the top, let us look at this last verse. I'm just verse 17. It says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, this verse says a lot in just a short sentence, and it can be seen in two different parts. So the first part unpacks the next point. Understanding the promise to those who are serving. Understanding the promise to those who are serving. And this creates a movement in our life. It creates a movement toward understanding that it's simply more blessed to give than to receive. That whole statement is re-quoted in Acts 20, verse 35, and it says this, And all of this I have given you an example, that by such work we must support the work of the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, for he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, why are you blessed? The answer is simple, because at the end of our life, the quality of the life we live will not be determined by how much we've consumed, but rather how much we have contributed. Our life will not, the quality of our life that we live will not be determined by how much we've consumed, but how much we have contributed. You know, in the work I'm called to do, I facilitate this experience. I just want to share this really quick to make a point called a life plan, which is a strategic operating plan for an individual. And this has worked through a period of two full days, and over the past decade, I have facilitated dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of these experiences for individuals from all different walks of life, stages of life, and so forth. And they're all unique and special, and yet there has been one commonality in all of them. Not one person that I have facilitated this experience for, when we get to the end of the experience and we craft their personal purpose statement for why they exist, have ever come up with a statement that said something along these lines, to get as much as I can from other people, or to get as rich as I can, or to accumulate as much goods as I can. Instead, the opposite is true, where every individual has had a purpose statement that captures the essence of serving or doing some good in this world. And this stuff is fresh in my mind, because I've done this experience back-to-back, two weeks, back-to-back going to San Diego to do it for a couple pastors or a couple young men, and each one of them came up with a purpose statement that embodied in their core who they were to give back in some way. So, the first thing, more blessed to give than receive. The second part of verse 17, here's the key part. It says, you are blessed if you do them. When we do serve, we come to realize something. Serving is not something we are told to do, nor is something we have to do. It is something we get to do, because blessing is found in the doing. So this next point in that second part of this verse is living into the practice of serving. And it is a movement where serving becomes a way of life. So, what does it mean for us to do this? Now, here is what, if you look up the definition of serving, you're going to find multiple different definitions. But for me, I've come to understand serving as simply this, 
to put yourself in a place where you put others first. To put yourself in a place where you put others first. Now, let us look at some places where we can live into serving. Now, all of these are important, and I hope that all of us will live out the practice of serving in all of these places, but let me go through these really quickly. The first one is what I would call structured places. Structured places. This keeps us in the habit of serving. That is ben- why it's so beneficial to serve in your local church. What is often referred to around here as the gathered church. Because if nothing else happens during the week, we can know that we go to a place where we serve every Sunday. And you know what is so beneficial for us being in a church like Crossroads? We have so many great examples. Whether Scott and Jennifer Wilson, the West Side greeting, whether it's someone like Mary or Sandy serving as auditorium hosts, our team in the back on the coffee, or anyone, our kids and youth, or tech or worship. We have so many great people that serve in structured places. And I guarantee you for all of them, no one them, knowing them and getting to know them over the past several years, none of them would say, I have to do this. In fact, I believe all of them would say, we get to do this. Now, one of the applications of this, I want to brief time out for a commercial. Got to do my commercial here. So, hey, membership practice. Last week, you heard Ryan mention this. He talked about what it means to be a member here. It's becoming six months, serving in some way, and contributing. Be sure to check the box on your Connect card. The other thing to connect your on, check on the Connect card is we have the annual meeting coming up on the 20th of November. So if you can make that, be sure to check that box as well. Now back to your originally scheduled message. Okay. Now, if serving only once a week was our only expression, honestly, I would say our lives would be pretty boring, which needs to the next place we can serve. It's called spontaneous places. It keeps us open to new opportunities to serve. Now, definition of spontaneous performed or occurring as a result of sudden inner impulse or inclination and without premeditation or external stimulus. You know, sometimes we get into these situations where spontaneously we're prompted to serve. It could be circumstantial. A need arises and we're there to step in. Or sometimes it comes to an unintended challenge where an ask is being made of some type, maybe not even targeted to us specifically, and we might say, you know what, I ought to do this. But we also want to live into the practice of serving in spontaneous places. Why? Because it keeps things fresh and alive. Okay? Next things. Um, secret places. This keeps us humble in our serving. Okay, what do I mean by secret places? Okay, now there's the secret kind of serving where we do things for other people behind the scenes and they don't know anything about. Right? And I'm going to actually say that's the kind of fun serving, right? where we get to do things for other behind the scenes. But here's what I'm talking about when I say secret serving or secret places. I'm talking about the things that we know at times we should be doing, but secretly in our hearts we say to ourselves, man, I sure wish somebody else would do it. Or we wish somebody else would take care of it. And that's why the secret places is where it keeps us humble in our serving. Because no one else sees that in us. But when we live into that, we combat that kind of things that are taking place in our heart. Now, maybe for many of us, as I shared the following places, you might be saying, you know what, I'm doing pretty good. And you know what, that's awesome. Now, there is a place where we might struggle or growth may be needed, and this is what I referred to as shared places. Shared places, this keeps us growing in our serving. How many of us are familiar with the expression, familiarity breeds contempt? You guys know that expression? Okay, 
Remember that University of Hawaii education is coming into play here. All my life, I thought that expression was familiarity breeds contentment. But you know what? <laughs> I know. Trust me. Um, but you know what? It actually might have some good application here. You know, I like to spin that expression because you know what I've noticed? The hardest places to serve are those places I'm most familiar and most content. The places where I have to share it with others. And these places are often with the people I was close to and the most important to us. So let me give some example of some shared places. Our workplaces, specifically the common work areas. That's a shared place that we can grow in our serving because there's things that maybe someone else should do, we would hope somebody would do, but maybe God is calling us to do that as a benefit to our coworkers. How about the gym? Is it so hard to re-rack weights in the 25 weights in the 25 section? <laughs> you know, 35 usually means 35, right? Okay, we're going to have to move. But maybe you re-rack the weights as kind of a thing in a shared space. Or how about like when we go on vacation? We got a finite amount of time. We got everybody who's very passionate about the place, but only, we can only do so much. And secretly in our mind, we're thinking, man, I hope we get to do my thing. Or how about this? And this is the one I'm most guilty of our home where oftentimes in that shared place of my home, I can be overly content and let things go by the wayside when I know I should be, share, I should be serving those in my home the most. Now, this whole series has been designed to unpack for us what it means to live into the life of the winner's circle and what is the path to greatness. And by example Jesus gave us, he showed the beauty of what it's like for someone to be king where you know you have all the power in the world, but you choose to serve not because you have to, but because you want to, and because you can't but help to, because it's in your very nature. You know, I shared how, if we have some time, and I think I got some time, I would share a story of how I can almost guarantee you I'm the only person who has ever done this. Trust me, don't worry, it's nothing illegal. Okay, so let me share this. Um, on occasion, I'm very fortunate to go to my favorite place in the world, which is New York City. In fact, there's a picture of my family up here that's on us on New Year's Eve. And on one such instance, I came in a day early for some work I was doing in the area, knowing that I would be bringing my kids, Rhett, who was 14 at the time, and Emerson, my daughter, 11 at the time, a week later, I decided to go see a Broadway play I knew would be of little or no interest to them. Because, you know, I'm a good servant, you know? No, I'm just kidding. Now, in New York City, there's a place called TKTS. It is in the middle of Times Square by the famous Red Stairs. And you can bribe Broadway tickets, show tickets, for up to 50% off for a selection of shows. Now, people usually line up an hour before it opens up at 3 and it goes to, um, and you can buy tickets for the 7 p.m. shows or 8 p.m. shows that night. And sometimes you can wait up to an hour, even longer. But it's worth it when you consider the discount. Now, after a long wait, you make it up to the ticket counter, and by that time, because you've been waiting in the line, staring at the board, displaying the show options that are available, it is understood that you have your decision made. This is New York. They have little you know, room for patience. <laughs> so I had two decisions to make. Decision number one, what would I see tonight? And decision number two, what would I see next week when I have my kids with me? So I decided on Beautiful, the story of music legend Carol King. Then I begin to ask them questions about seeing the Disney production Frozen, which is what I decided I would take the kids to next week. So I got my ticket, settling into my head, 
sitting into my hotel. I headed out to the theater. I got there. They checked my bag, and the usher scanned my ticket to get in. And the scanning of the ticket was met with an annoying buzzing sound, indicating something was wrong. So she scanned again and again, and the noisy buzzing sound would continue. So she took some time to look at the ticket and looked at it more carefully and said, I'm sorry, sir, but this is a ticket for Frozen. So I, I guess in the midst of the conversation at the ticket booth, again, they're very impatient because Frozen was the last play I spoke about. He assumed that I wanted a ticket for that show. And I did not even think of the possibility and never bothered to check the ticket. Now, these tickets are non-refundable and even at 50% are pricey. So I called my friend who lives in New Jersey to express my frustration. I am venting to receive some level of empathy. And I was only met with unceasing laugh, unceasing laughter at the other end of the phone and these great words of advice. He said, Rod, you got to let it go. <laughs> so that night, for two and a half hours, I sat in a fully packed theater among moms and their five to 13-year-old daughters watching Frozen. Can you say awkward? Okay. But I want to fast forward the clock a little bit. This is one week later in New York City, and this time with my kids. They are in the Disney store across the street, and I'm in the TKTS line again. And my kids who have come to, New, come to New York numerous times are pretty comfortable in the city. And we agreed that I would go see Beautiful, the play I thought I was seeing last week, and they would go see Frozen. Now, at this point, you might be thinking or questioning the wisdom as me as a parent, letting my kids roam the streets of New York by themselves. That's another story. So, again, the TKTS line is long. They make an announcement. They say, if you've seen a play within one week and can show proof, you can get to the front of the line. I checked my wallet. I still had the ticket stuff that allowed me to go to right to the front. I thought to myself, at least there's some good coming out of me seeing Frozen last week. So I, got, I was called up to the ticket booth to make my purchase. I received this prompting in a still small voice. The whole purpose of this trip is to provide, your fun, provide for your kids a fun experience with you and create some, hopefully, some lasting memories. So I told the ticket agent, I will take three tickets for Frozen, please. And there's the ticket of the Frozen tickets to proof. And there's my kids and I watching Frozen. Let's do this. Okay. Now, I am pretty sure, outside any of employee of the show and their family, I am probably the only person in the world that has seen Frozen twice in the span of one week. <laughs> I guarantee you that. Now, in just a minute, we're going to have the auditorium host come forward to receive the offering. And also, we're going to have an opportunity, and Kia is going to come out and give us our final blessing. But I'd like to leave us with this one thought. Whatever happened to Peter? Peter, the one that initially said, you can't wash my feet. Then he changed his answer to, just wash my whole body. Whatever happened to Peter? Well, if you read the further gospel accounts, I like to think that he did grow in his understanding of what it means to serve. And so I leave us with this. True greatness is to serve. True greatness elevates what is common and menial and adds dignity and honor to it. True greatness is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And on our path to true greatness, I leave you with the words of 1 Peter 2.21 that says this, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. Thank you, everybody, for letting me share today.